Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, the Beijing 2022 Olympic Winter Games are underway and Team Canada has 215 athletes competing in 14 sports. This is Canada's third largest Winter Olympic team ever, just behind the 225 athletes named in Pyeongchang in 2018. So today I thought I'd reach out to two people from our province who know what's going through the athlete's head when they compete on this largest stage. Not only have they attended the Olympics as athletes, but they brought home the hardware. The final score of 10 4, but it's a gold medal for Canada left. The party begins. In the second half of the show, we'll chat with Jamie Korob, who won the gold medal for curling in the 2006 Winter Games in Torino. Caitlin Osmond will win a medal. But our first guest we get to hear from tonight is Caitlin Osmond, who's originally from Marystown, Newfoundland. She was Canada's first ladies world champion in 45 years when she won in 2018, and she received the Order of Newfoundland. At the 2014 Sochi Olympics, she brought home a silver medal for the team event in figure skating, and then in 2018 in Pyeongchang, South Korea, she brought home a gold medal for the team event and a bronze in the singles event. Now, if you tune to the Olympic figure skating this week, you'll hear her commentating the competition. Well, she joined me from her home in Edmonton to talk all about her Olympic experience. Let's check it out. Hi, Caitlin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to talk to you today. I mean, you know, this is the time of year. Everybody is watching the Olympics right now. You obviously being a two-time Olympian is something we can share today. But, you know, before we get into your extensive career, you're from Newfoundland. You are born in Marystown. I am. <laughs> I haven't lived there in a while, but I am from there. Yeah, you've come back and visited a few times, in particular after the last Olympics, which was great. And I think it was really inspirational for a lot of kids to see that somebody from here can make it to the highest levels of competition. You were only 18 years old when you first went to the Olympics. Um, what was that like? And can you sort of explain the experience leading up to it? That'd be like mind blowing. <laughs> it came up so fast for me. I never thought I would, was good enough to go to the Olympics. And then the year before the 2014 Olympics, I made an international debut in senior and all of a sudden it was a possibility, <laughs> but it was just one competition after the next, after the next, after the next, that I didn't have time to think about it. Mm -hmm. And then next thing I know, I was standing at the Olympics mm -hmm. and I never really paid attention to the Olympics growing up. So for me, I was a little confused as to why all my friends were like crying and like super excited to be there. And it wasn't until the closing ceremonies for me. So I had finished the entire competition. I competed four times at my first Olympics. Uh, I came out with a silver medal with the team event. And it wasn't until I walked into closing ceremonies that I was like up on my friend's shoulders so that I could see over everyone. And I was like, this is what it's about. There was so much energy, so many people, so much um, unity and all of that excitement. Just, yeah, that's kind of what made my first Olympics. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, and when you were there, then the next time you went to the Olympics, you came home with some hardware and it was it a different experience knowing what you were getting into and then having the weight of people having these massive expectations on you. It was definitely different. Uh, I went into 2014 relatively unknown. There's two Canadian ladies that went, but we really didn't know what we could do yet. So a lot of the pressure was taken off for that. Fast mm -hmm. forward to 2018. I had a lot more expectations for myself. Uh, I was competing really well internationally. I was winning, if not being on the podium at every competition. 
And ultimately, I think the pressure from that I put on myself was still stronger than the pressure that other people put on me. And really the pressure that other people put on me was encouragement. The reason that they wanted to see me do well is because I could. And that's the way I took it is that the more people that were aiming and like wanting me to do well, they knew I could do it. And that gave me confidence because, well, I had that support. So do you think being such a young athlete at games like that was an advantage or a disadvantage? Like, do you think sometimes you feel more stress or, or like you said, you're kind of oblivious to like exactly what's happening? I think when you're younger, it's a lot easier to pretend it's another competition. Mm-hmm. Um, you really haven't had the failures yet at such a young age or the ups and the downs. So like the big extremes from one to the next and being young, you can kind of just say like, it's another competition. We'll do our best we can. The older you get, the more the brain sets in, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the more the fear can set in. Um, I never got nervous until I was 19 years old. Um, and then when I was 19 up until I retired from skating, I was petrified at every competition. Mm -hmm. So a lot of extra things uh, come into play when you get older, but you also add the experience. So like it was pros and cons to both, I guess. I preferred being an older athlete because, well, I felt stronger by the time I was 22 than when I was at 18. Mm -hmm. I felt more mentally prepared, but being 18 was so relaxing. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. And people are scared of you and they're going up against you and you're an older athlete as opposed to you being maybe afraid of some of the more senior skaters. So, I mean, you've competed, like you said, at world championships, nationals, you all over the world. Is there, is the Olympics different than other competitions? When you're on the ice, I don't know if like other people believe the same thing that I do, mm-hmm. but when I'm on the ice at Olympic games, it feels the same. Mm. Uh, because I'm at the competition with pretty much everyone I've been competing against for the last four years when I was there. I was often on the ice with the Russian skaters because it's just the way our world rankings worked. Mm -hmm. So I was used to being on the ice with the Russians. I used to be on the ice with Japanese skaters. So when I was on the ice with them at the Olympic Games, it felt relatively normal. The only thing that makes the Olympics different from another competition is that there's more athletes. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're in a village, which is not typically what we're used to as, as figure skaters anyways. There's other sports happening at the same time. This year aside, usually there's a bigger audience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, a, and a different sport audience. So like people that typically probably won't watch figure skating are coming in to watch the figure skating events. Mm-hmm. And it's a longer period of time. I was at the Olympics for three weeks before I got to compete. Uh, I was there at the beginning and competed right away. And then I had to readjust and replan. And like 10 days later, I had to compete again. Um, without being able to come home in between. So like there's those kind of aspects that are quite different. Well, you actually mentioned that, like the the amount of people in the village. I mean, I don't know if people understand just how many people are there, not just the athletes, but like the support teams. Give me an idea of like, for example, when you guys went with the figure skating team, like how many people outside of just the skaters that we see on the ice were actually involved with that? So looking at just the figure skating team. So we see like, Team Canada, for example, uh, at the last two Olympics, we had the largest Olympic team. So in 2014, 2018, we had the largest figure skating team, which meant we had three, three ladies, two men, three dance teams. So that's six more people. Um, and three pairs team was another six people. I don't know how many of that is. Math is terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but on top of that, on top of that, everybody, almost everybody has a different coach. 
So their coaches are with them, their coaching team. Uh, we have a team leader or two team leaders usually. Uh, we have Mike Slipachuk, who is our director, and we have a doctor. We have a physio. It's a big team, and that's just the figure skating team. Mm-hmm. So when we're in the Olympic Village, usually we're all like sport oriented. But in the village that I was in, it would have like the speed skaters, the hockey players, the long track speed skaters, and all those other sports that are usually done like in a building. <laughs> yeah, right. I'd say it's pretty similar to that right now, given the fact that people have to bubble up like uh, and I'm sure the the energy is probably quite different at this Olympics. Uh, have you heard anything about what's happening with like the protocols there? And if it's like kind of a different vibe than it was in previous years? I've been itching to talk to people, but I'm trying to let them like have their time. Um, so I haven't actually talked to them, yeah. but from what I've been like following, they all seem to be having a great time. Perfect. Um, it's still at the Olympic games. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot more protocols. Um, the cafeteria, you're like, there's a glass wall between every seat so that like, you can still see who you're eating with, but you can't necessarily see and talk to them. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it was just there. It's different, yeah. but we've been used to different for the last two years. <laughs> we have been. Yes. Yeah. And then, like, there's a little audience. And I think because of the fact that there's less of an audience, the athletes are able to go watch more sports. So they're getting a lot more of like the athlete experience. We're talking all about the Olympic experience with Marystown's Caitlin Osmond, world champion figure skater and Olympic gold medalist. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're talking about the Olympic experience with Marystown's own Caitlin Osmond, world champion figure skater and Olympic gold medalist. Let's get back to the interview. Give me a lowdown of what it's like before you would go into one of your major competitions. Um, going into any competition, I pretty much trained the same way the full year, mm-hmm. uh, which meant I trained three hours on the ice, uh, five days a week, and often trained about two hours off the ice. So that includes anything from, I warmed up for an hour, 45 minutes to an hour before I got on the ice. And then I cooled down for another 45 minutes. So on top of that, then there was like my cardio training, my strength training, my ballet training, uh, my physiotherapy, uh, my massage therapy, uh, my sports psychology. There was just a lot. Um, And it pretty much took up like my whole day. Like I started training. Typically I would go to the gym around seven in the morning or seven 30 and then I'll go all the way up until 5 PM. So it's pretty much my full-time job <laughs> with is. a couple of breaks here and there. Um, and that was like that for 80% of the year. Hmm. Um, the times of the year that I wasn't training like that, I was on shows. I was trying to make any sort of income that I could so that I could do that for the whole year. Uh, so I was going to shows, I was teaching seminars, I was traveling the world doing more shows. Um, and that's the stuff that I loved. Like I had no problem doing that. Uh, and then I would get one week off after a competition. I would usually take a couple days in December after the first half of the competition season was over. I would take about like half a week to a full week off. Um, and every now and then I would just take days off jumping. (laughs) Yeah, even you have to park a Ferrari every once in a while. The yeah. uh, so you mentioned something that's interesting, physiotherapy. I don't think people realize how common injuries are, and that people just work through injuries. Like, did you suffer from any injuries during your career? Too many injuries to count. Yeah. 
Um, I was very much injury prone. And unfortunately, once you get the one injury, it's like a domino effect. And then you're just fighting them for the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So my physio and I like, I started working with my physio when I was about 14 years old and he was my physio all the way up until I I retired at 22 and he was phenomenal, but I got to the point at the end, he's like, I'll keep the band-aids on. Um, but I know you're not going to listen to me. So, um, I, I'm very thankful he understood that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was there whenever I was injured, I was at physio probably between two to three times a week. Uh, when I had my leg broken after 2014, I was at physio for three hours a day, four days a week. So I pretty much replaced my on ice training with physio. Mm-hmm. Um, once I got healthy, <laughs> To an extent, mm-hmm. I would still be required to go to physio once a week yeah. as preventative measures. Um, and because I make sure that things are still in line and things are making sure that you're not going to get injured. Or if you do get injured, it's not going to be starting from scratch again. Yeah. I can see the value of having somebody that knows you so well and your whole track record and the way your body functions, especially, I mean, I don't think people, you think about what you do, you throw yourself in the air, spin three times and land on a little tiny blade on a slippery surface. It's gotta be one of the hardest, most challenging sports around. <laughs> like it's, this just sounds mind blowing when you think about it. Now, the other support you mentioned, which I think is really important. And we saw this sort of like with Simone Biles, like, you know, withdrawing competition because of her mental health is the amount of stress that people are under. And when you think about something like figure skating, where you've got a routine and when somebody falls, there's just a huge gasp, you know, from the audience. And, and it's gotta be so hard for the athlete to be able to like pick themselves up and then continue flawlessly for the rest of the, the performance or the, or the skate. Um, how important was sports psychology and what, what did they sort of train you to do? I give full credit to my sports psychologist for my last two years of skating. I put a lot of pressure on myself and being a typical human being, I see the bad sides of my skating and feel it more than majority of what people will see. I'm my hardest critic, obviously, because I'm a nice person. Um, (laughs) And for me, I had a really hard time coming back after I broke my leg. Physically, I healed up faster than any other injury that I ever had. I had, I was forced to take the time off because my bone was broken. So it actually healed properly, but mentally I was exhausted and scared and getting older. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was just a lot of things. And I didn't think I ever wanted to compete again. I didn't even want to step foot on the ice again. Mm -hmm. And because I put that in my brain, that took a lot, a long time to heal because I had fully convinced myself I wasn't going to compete again. Wow. Um, but I was too scared to tell anyone. So I was still competing and I went to a year of competitions where I did horrendous. I also had my personal worst skate of my life. Mm-hmm. I missed making the world team by 0.12. It is like nothing in skating. <laughs> And then I ended my last competition actually on a pretty good high note. I finished sixth, but I actually felt like good about my skate. And I was just angry that I couldn't do that the whole year. Mm. I was like, if I'm going to torture myself through training every single day, I want to be proud of what I do at competitions. Right. Right. If I make mistakes, I make mistakes. That's fine. But I don't want to finish competitions and be miserable. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started working with my sports psychologist and I saw her every single week, once a week, every Tuesday after skating. And we went through everything of breaking through fear, yeah. um, how to fake confidence until I believed in it. <laughs> right, right. Fake it to make uh, it. Yeah. Gave me a lot of focusing exercises because I have a really hard time focusing in meditation and gave me a place to rant. Uh, gave me a tool to rant about my coach who I spent way too many hours with. Um, I love him. I respect him. But when you spend that much time with someone, you're going to not be happy all the time. Um, (laughs) so it gave me room to rant about my coach, rant about my parents, rant about boys and life and all that other stuff that all piles up. You don't think it adds up, but it does. And when you want to perform at your best, you need to let them go. Uh Um, and then it just, it helps you have more space to take in the added pressure and the added, um, energy and be able to focus when you have to. Well, that's the thing. Like, I mean, after you've had your, your injuries, you had some of your best years. I mean, that's when you went back to the next Olympics and that's when you got bronze. And I mean, you know, so obviously you overcame that, but that had to have been pretty challenging. Was there a point that was it that last skate where you came sixth that you were like, okay, I enjoy this again. That would sort of reset the clock or was it just working with this professional on a day-to-day basis? Um, following that competition that I came sixth, So that was the end of my season in 2016, mm-hmm. I think 2016 going into the 2016, 2017. Uh, so two years prior to the Olympics. Yes. And I came home from that competition. I was still training for the world championships because I was the alternate. And I trained all the way up until that competition. And when it finally started, I was like, all right, I'm taking my vacation. (laughs) And I took like a week off and then I went back into my shows and started refocusing for the next year. But in my head, when I was training for that world championships that I wasn't competing at, I looked at my coach and I was like, well, we need to make a change. Yeah. I was like, I'm either going to stop competing right now after the two worst years of my competitive career. Mm -hmm. And be still fine with it. I was already at a world championship. I was well, two world championships. I already had a medal at the Olympics. Yep. I'm like, what else was I going for? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> there was but more. I want to end a 20 year career yep. off two horrible years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I put it in my brain then I was like, I will train and put every single thing of part of me I have into the next two years see what it can get me. And then we'll reevaluate after 2018. Um, after 2018, I was exhausted. There was no coming back. <laughs> well, you, had your, you had your third national title, two Olympic medals, a world title under your belt. So that all makes sense that you would be able to, you know, take, <laughs> take it to that level. I mean, and that's, that's an incredible story for people to hear about overcoming uh, injuries and the challenges, but also that it takes a village to kind of support that, you know, um, I guess that's one of the things I really want to talk to you about now from somebody who's gone through the system and seen what it's added to your life and the experiences it's given you, you've been around the world, you know, you've done amazing things, you know, why do you think sports is so important for kids? And maybe the level you were at isn't necessarily the best thing for all people. Cause I have talked to some elite athletes where they say, you know, it's good when it's fun. And then it gets a little bit like a job because you're saying you have to manage your family and boyfriends and work and everything else. But you know, why do you think sports uh, is a, is a sort of a, a, a good tool or maybe you don't think it's a good tool. Um, I definitely think it's a good tool. Yeah. Uh, kind of funny that you mentioned that about other elite athletes, because I'm pretty sure every elite athlete I know says 
if you have a kid, put them in sport, but don't make them good. (laughs) Um, No, it's an incredible experience. And I, I loved being an elite athlete. I have no complaints. maybe a few complaints, but not enough that I regret any of it. Mm -hmm. But for kids, it is such an amazing way to build a family. Um, That's the biggest thing that I loved about skating growing up is that the friendships that I built throughout all of it. And I had fun and going to the rink every day. I learned about a schedule I learned and I liked having a goal to work towards. When I was younger, I I didn't necessarily have a competition goal or um, a jump goal because I didn't understand any of that stuff, but I knew I wanted to show up to the rink every day. Mm-hmm. I knew my friends were there. I knew that after school, I, while we're living in Marystown, the, the rink was across the parking lot from my school. Mm-hmm. So before school, I got to go skating and then walk across the parking lot to the school. And then after school, I got to walk back to the rink and it just felt normal. Yeah. And I think that's what a sport is just so good for, for people is that it fills their day so that they're not bored. It gives them activities and you can feel that improvement. And that improvement gives like such like an inner pride, even if it's so small, but like looking back one day, you're not able to stand on one foot. And then like two weeks later, you're like, man, I can glide on one foot. No problem. And it's just so small, but it's nice. And you learn how to listen to the people telling you what to do. (laughs) And you get to work with your friends. Mm -hmm. You get to challenge your friends. You get to look up to your friends. I skated with my sister and she was always getting so much better than me. And I was like, I want to do that. Yeah. The sport is just an amazing thing. And I guess the biggest thing for me was keeping me not bored. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And uh, good luck next week when you're commentating. You're, uh, uh, you're amazing to interview. So it's so perfect. You're obviously a seasoned pro. Thanks so much. And we hope to see you back in town soon. Perfect. Thank you. We're talking all about the Olympic experience in today's episode. That was Marystown's own Caitlin Osmond, world champion figure skater and Olympic gold medalist. When we come back, we'll talk with Jamie Korob, who won the gold in 2006 with Team Guju, and we'll talk about his experience at the Olympics and what athletes go through to prepare for the world stage. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Jamie Korob, who was born in Harbour Grace and was the lead for the gold medal winning Canadian men's team in the 2006 Winter Games on Team Guju. Jamie's now a city councillor here in St. John's, but way back when, when he was competing at the World Juniors, we became good friends. He joined me for a chat about his Olympic experience and what it felt like to bring home the gold. Let's check it out. Hey, Jamie, welcome to the show. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It's good to see you. We've known each other for a long time. I remember when we first met, it was when I first moved here, and you guys were getting ready for the World Juniors. That was, how long ago was that? 20 years ago. 21 years ago. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> that's wild. He had quite the career since then. And that's what we're talking about today is just to give people an idea of what the Olympic experience is like. And ironically, we had Caitlin Osmond on right before you. And you got an interesting story of how you met her. Yeah. So I, I never met Caitlin, obviously. Uh, you know, she doesn't live here in the province now. And, you know, I'm a bit older. We run in different uh, ice facility, you know, facilities naturally with curling in figure skating. So I was off to a charity event, like a pro-am event, curling event in Ontario. And Caitlin was just coming back from the Olympics with her, you know, with her medal. 
And I was already through security and walking by, and this was before the configuration of the new airport. So it was, you know, actually seven or eight years ago. And she was already through and I seen her and I was like, Hey, Caitlin. And she's like, Hey, like we recognize each other. So I asked the guy, could I just go outside and say hi and get a picture? And he kind of looked around and I hope I'm not going to say his name, but he's like, sure, but don't tell anyone. So he let me come outside security, which probably shouldn't have happened. So we had a chance to say, Hey, got a picture together. I fired up on my social media again and I had a quick chat and I was, even though I had an Olympic gold medal, just seeing another medal, it was the first one I'd seen from that Olympics. And it was just, it's just, I get goosebumps even holding someone else's medal. It's such a cool feeling. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about is I don't think it's, it's, uh, it's easy for people to try and understand what it feels like to be at the Olympics. You know, the Olympics are on now. Guju rink is curling, but there's lots of other Canadian athletes that are competing at the highest level. Like what does it feel like to compete there versus say other events? The actual, when you're on the playing surface, there isn't much that changes. You're for the most part, your playing surface is the same. Uh, you're playing a lot of the teams that you've played you know, a dozen times throughout the last few years. So once you're on the ice, once you throw your first drop, not much is different. It's everything leading up to that first drop. It's, mm. you know, the amount of media that's around. It's the Olympic rings that are hanging from the rafters. Uh, it's, you know, just everything that goes along with it, the full experience, knowing that, you know, it's not just, you're not just playing the briar or playing in a Grand Slam event where there's a bunch of Canadian curling fans watching. You're at the Olympics when there's there's people in Italy, Australia, all over the world. Some have no clue about it. Uh, so yeah, there, there's definitely a different experience and different pressures. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's something that's uh, you know the experience of going a few times, which Brad and Mark now have, will definitely help them. Yeah. Of course. Right. Cause I mean, they've been down that road before. It's funny. Caitlin said the same thing. She said she figure skated against the same people. It was just a different sort of vibe there. Um, question. How do you think it is to play in front of less people at an event of that magnitude? Does that cause people to be more in their head or is it easier because you have less distraction from the crowd? Uh, it actually was a bit of almost a bit of a distraction for us. This was 2006. Yeah, And uh, I call it the golden years of curling in terms of uh, attendance. So, you know, we curled at the Briar or the Briar in Saskatoon in 04, two years before the Olympics. And, you know, they broke an attendance record. There's 15,000 people at a game. The next year at the Briar in Edmonton, Rexall Place, sold out a 9.30 morning draw. And there's literally 18,000, 19,000 people there. And then we go to the Olympics a year later, less than a year later. Yeah. And it would have been easier to, for the first couple of games, it would have been easier to introduce the fans to the players. It would have been quicker because there was about 17, 18 people there. Uh, huh. There was two very intoxicated Norwegian guys with the big <laughs> horns on the whole time. So you can hear those guys, whereas if there's a lot of, you know, a lot of fans there, that stuff gets drowned out. So, you know, it, it wasn't a huge distraction for us, but as the week went on, you know, more and more people got there. And then by the gold medal final, it you know it was kind of more about what we're used to. The flip side of that, just with regards to the fans, is there weren't a lot of educated fans in terms of curling, especially a lot of the local Italians. You know, it, curling's a, a gentleman's or a gentle person's game now. It's very sportsmanlike. But at the Olympics, they were the Italians were cheering for misses because um, they just like you would in hockey. Someone misses yeah. a good save, you cheer. So we actually lost to Joel, um, who's the Italian skip. Never thought I'd ever lose to an Italian team, but they played fantastic, deserved the win. Ironically, overnight, just seven or eight hours ago, Brad played Joel again, different yeah. team, but the same skip, and he uh, he won that game, so he got his redemption. That's awesome. Yeah, it's funny. They got the soccer hooligan attitude, not so much the uh, curly uh, gentle person's uh, approach towards it. Yeah, I mean, 
And I guess that's a, that's a question. I mean, you guys trained extensively leading up to the Olympics. And I mean, I was, I was fortunate to meet you guys when you guys do world juniors, but you ended up going on and there was actually scientific articles posted on the training that you guys did. What does it take other than, I mean, you've got to go to the game and it seems like a relatively short, you know, contest for the amount of work that goes in. What does it take to get ready for something like this? Yeah, well, you know, in talking with yourself and uh, Mr. Bain and a few other people, you know, curling is probably 90 to 95 percent mental. Uh, there is a physical aspect, no question with the sweeping, but, you know, in talking with you, Mike, and other people, when your physical breaks down, your mental breaks down. So mm. we wanted to be as physically fit as possible. And one of our kind of right through that time was, you know, we wanted to leave no stone unturned and we wanted to get that extra, pun intended, mm-hmm. we wanted to get that extra three or 4%. And how are we going to get that? Well, being in shape. So, you know, leading into, you know, once we got together in 03, 04, especially the summer of 05, getting ready for that Olympic trials, we wanted to be in the best shape as possible. Well, all of us, except Russ, Russ, he was 49. He had his own, you know, <laughs> training program, but the rest of us. So we really got together. That's Brad, Mike, Mark, and myself. And I think we were one of the first teams that re- we were definitely one of the first teams that get a sports psychologist on board. Mm-hmm. But I think we took the physical aspect of it to a different level. I think we probably trained more than any other team going into that trial. Now mm-hmm. that kind of morphed, if you want to go four years later to Vancouver, the teams were in amazing shape. You got teams like Brad Jacobs, you know, mm-hmm. you know, all four of those guys are jacked. So, but yeah, so for us, that was a big thing to be in shape. And, uh, you know, there's no question that was the best shape of my life. You know, yeah. cardio wise, I could run around kitty bitty, you know, <laughs> now if I had to run from my car to the boathouse, I'd be winded. So, uh, but it was something we really wanted to have done uh, to do, I should say, to be the best prepared as possible for that game. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And yeah, you guys did train really hard. And like you said, it's uh, the sports change and people look for that extra percentage because competition just gets so much more fierce as people develop as athletes. I can't pass the stairs between the Cabot building and uh, the Mary Brown Center. <laughs> One of the things we did do is that during that summer, um, I'd be responsible for the events we were going to do that that week, that training week. So I, I'd have to pick three events. It could be playing basketball at the Y, it could be tennis, it could be open Frisbee. But at least once a week, if not twice, it was running those stairs between yeah. Cabot Building and Mary Brown Center. And still to this day, when I look at those, my knees hurt. I cringe. I get winded. It yeah. gives me anxiety. I actually went back, I uh, think it was last summer, the summer before, and ran them. Yeah. Um, and when I should say ran them, I, I walked quickly. And yeah. uh, I did it about four or five times. And I, I don't think I'll ever go back. No, yeah, there's two staircases that do that to me. There's those stairs and there's that last set in Signal Hill when you're staring up after that hike. And I run the stairs and walk in between and man, oh man, you just get, it just goes under slow motion underwater. When you get near the top, your legs get like lead. But you know, it does help because again, that's just one less thing to worry about. And like you said, yeah, sports psychologists and all sorts of stuff. But I, I remember watching that game, everybody in the province and most of the country was watching that game. Um, what was the pressure like in the, did you, did you notice a difference? Do you feel it? Or were you just like completely in the zone? Yeah. I mean, all the round Robin games, a lot, there's no question. There's pressure. Uh-huh. Uh, once as me as a lead, when I threw my first rock of the game, uh, I settled in, I, the pressure was gone, but there was crazy butterflies. Uh-huh. The gold medal game was the same. Basically I threw my first rock and I settled in, but I was a little nervous before the, before the gold medal game for a number of reasons. The semifinal was actually, in my opinion, I think you talk to most athletes that play in a, a team sport where there is a bronze medal game. It's different if you're a skier or a bobsledder because it's all on time. So that semifinal game, you lose that, you go to the bronze medal game. You lose that, you're still an Olympian, but you come home with no hardware. Uh-huh. You win that silver medal, or the, you win that 
semifinal game and you're coming home with at worst a silver. Mm-hmm. So I came out for my first rock of the semifinal game and I threw it. And after I threw it, I was waiting for the nerves to settle. And okay, well, I'm still really jittery, still nervous, you know, throw my second rock, throw my third rock, my fourth rock. It wasn't until the fifth end break that I finally settled in. We were playing the U.S. team, uh, good friends of mine, John Schuster, who was on the team actually is the U.S. skip this go around reigning Olympic gold medalist. And I finally settled in. And then again, you know, once we won that game, we had a chat. Uh, we got together, I think it was the morning of the final. And basically said, look, guys, you know what? This is just fun now. This is gravy. Mm-hmm. I got goosebumps even talking about this. You're, at worst, we're winning a silver, we're getting a silver medal. Yeah. But you know what? Let's just go out and have some fun. Like, let's, let's play like we can. Let's follow our process. Let's do all the things we've been training for, all the things we've done, the physical, the mental. Let's put it, you know, put it to work. But let's just have fun. This is the yeah. Olympic final. There's millions of people watching. Yeah. And uh, we went out. We gave up two in the first end. But got it to right back and then you know we kind of went on cruise control from there we're here with olympic gold medalist and city of st john's counselor jamie korab as he talks about his experience at the 2006 olympic winter games and what it feels like for those athletes that are there now competing on the world stage we'll be right back after the break We're here with Olympic gold medalist and City of St. John's counselor, Jamie Korab, as he talks about his experience at the 2006 Olympics and what it feels like for those athletes that are currently competing at the Olympic Winter Games. Let's get back to the interview. When you won the gold at that moment, what happened when you realized you won? And then tell me about what it was like to stand on the podium and hear the national anthem. Yeah, one of the funny stories from that, I mean, Russ Howard, he turned 50, uh, our game against New Zealand at that Olympics. So mm-hmm. Russ is a legend. It'd be like picking up Wayne Gretzky for your rec hockey team. That's yeah. the, the, the easiest way I could put it. So we get, Brad has a draw for seven, which I think would have put us put this up 11 to two or I think or 11 to three. And he, he gasses it, which is no big deal. We still got six. And at that moment, I could see the look in Brad's eyes and Mark's eyes and Russ's eyes, like, the realization, even though there was three or four ends left, like we just won Olympic gold medal. And I've heard Russ tell this story a few times. He said, ironically enough, the guy there with the soul patch with the blonde and red mohawk is looking at me, telling me, come on, guys, we still got four ends left. There's just one shot of time. Let's refocus. And Russ, you know, Russ jokingly said he's, he's right. So at that moment, we kind of knew, but I was not letting my you know guard down. I was not backing down. I wanted to keep playing. So it really wasn't until, for me anyway, personally, the last rock of the game, um, Marco Usapalanemi from Finland, or M15, as he's, as he's known. The rock was about at the hog line, and uh, Willie McLeod, the third on Team Finland, came out and shook my hand first. And that moment, that's when it's like, it's excitement, it's relief, it's, you know, jubilation, it's everything all in the one. And then you shake hands first, you know, you give respect to the other team. And then once all the hands were shaken, then it was just, it you know, I look back at videos now and, you know, we just got our arms in the air. We did a big group hug and yeah. it's just, you almost don't know what to do. Yeah, and right. then the, the interesting thing then it's different at this games, given a different time, which we can talk about in a second that mm-hmm. you get your medals the day you win, but for us and a lot of Olympians, you get your medal the next day. So we, but they did have a presentation for us. They gave us flowers, which I do have dried out here on this place still 16 <laughs> years later. So it was a full 24 hours before we got our medal. And, you know, that was an experience all in itself, just, you know, a, a city of a million people that probably had 2 million people there at the time, just, you know, in a, in a vehicle with BMW motorbikes, escorting you to the metal plaza, cool. going up train tracks upside. It was something out of a, a James Bond movie. And then, you know, actually getting that medal the next day, right on the Saturday, 
you know, with a few thousand people there and, you know, your flag goes up and, you know, you're the plane all Canada. And it was just that whole 24 hours was just an absolute whirlwind. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, you know, and when, when they played the music, was there even something else like, a, I mean, I, I, again, you sound like you're kind of like an I's dotted T's cross kind of guy. You weren't going to celebrate till you knew you finally got it when you got that placed around your neck. Was that even another level of sort of like, Holy cow, like it's done. Yeah, no question. We, we became pretty good friends with the women's hockey team there and they won their gold medal uh, two or three days before us. And, you know, Sammy Jo Small, who's still a friend of mine, she was one of the goalies. She showed, you know, they showed us the medal and they were like, you know, touch it. You guys are going to get one. And I'm like, I ain't, I'm not touching this. When I, when I touch a gold medal, it's going to be the one around my neck. So, you know, they, they give us, they put the medal around your neck. They give you your flowers, put the medal around your neck and you just take it and you look at it. And it's just, it's almost like all those years of, you know, the blood, sweat and tears of training, you know, to be, you know, almost a little, you know, you know, the old saying and all the hard work was into, but then you just look at it and it's, you know, it's such a realization of everything to come true. And then, you know, I had said, if we win Olympic gold medal, I will sing O Canada to the top of my lungs. Yeah. Uh, our flag is being raised up. O Canada comes on. And if, if, you know, I look back at the footage and my jaws, my mouth is open. I'm not even breathing. I'm just staring at the flag and I just zoned out and did nothing for about a minute. So, uh, yeah. cool. and then, you know, we, we get to stand up on a, you know, another podium and, all our family and friends are there. So yeah, it was, uh, it was super cool. That's cool. Well, listen, I mean, we're recording this on Monday. Uh, the show's aired on Thursday. So a lot could happen between then and now. How do you think the guys are looking for uh, this year? Looking pretty good so yeah. far. No, you know, I, I said going into this, it's the three medalists are going to be Team Guju in no particular order right now. Team yeah. Guju, uh, Nicholas Sedin from Sweden and Mowat from Scotland. There's no question. The top two teams in the world right now are Guju and Mowat. So that's, Scotland or Great Britain, as they are at the Olympics. And I mean, Nicholas Sedin, you know, an amazing curler. You know, they started great, then they had a little bit of a speed bump there, you know, and then, uh, you know, kind of a few missed shots, and that led into a second loss and put you at two and two. But they came out then against the U.S. team and uh, played amazing. And then they got another game against Italy. So that, you know, at, right now, as we record, they're at four and two. But, you know, I've seen a lot of really positive things in that U.S. game that they played and, you know, the highlights and some of the Italy, Italy game I've seen. So I'm really liking where the two now, the body language. I had a chat actually with Jeff Thomas, their coach, uh, just yesterday because he actually is the coach of the junior team that I say junior team. They just won the men's tankers. So they're going to be the representative team, Nathan Young, at the Briar in Lethbridge in a, in a few weeks. So Jeff was watching that game. It was on. Two, it was 2 o'clock in the morning. That game was on in Beijing and Jeff was yeah. up. Um, had a great coach fill in for him, Toby McDonald, segueing in as he was our coach at the Olympics. Mm -hmm. But uh, Jeff, you know, I asked him how the boys work because I've kind of left them alone. I haven't reached out. You know, they've got a job to do. And he said, you know, that, that was a great win. Uh, they're feeling great. Things are awesome. And uh, I have no question they're making the semis. Again, that pressure semifinal game that we talked about. Uh, but you know what? I think we're going to have to be in as a city councilor. We're going to have to find something to name after some more streets because I, I truly <laughs> believe they're coming home with a gold medal. That's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's a good thing they had a couple of uh, rough games to begin with to get that out of their system. If they were going in winless and they had a bad, uh, bad end, they might be a little bit thrown. So that's probably a good thing. And you said Nathan Young. Uh, Nathan was on our show. And this segues to something that you're doing now. Um, we have the Canada Games coming. So may not be the Olympics, but there's going to be a lot of excitement around that here in the city over the next few years. Yeah, I was on the bid committee for that. Now, you know, in fairness, we were bidding against ourselves. 
Yeah. Uh, no, you know, because the way the Canada Games is awarded, it's awarded by province. So it was coming to Newfoundland, but we still had to prove to the Canada Games Committee that we were able to host the games and able to put off a great games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but we've got, you know, some amazing city staff and, you know, community leaders around there. Karen Sheriffs, who's going to be the CEO of that. She's a city employee. She's been a previous chef de mission, a chef de mission. I mean, she goes right back to the 99 Canada Games in Cornerbrook. So, you know, so we were successful in the bid. Um, and, you know, I'm still involved now in, the, you know, basically the Canada Games and kind of bringing it here. But it's going to be fantastic. It's a multi-sporting event. Um, you know, the rent, the generation of revenue from it is somewhere between 70 and a hundred million dollars. Uh, you only got to look at infrastructure, you know, the, um, aquatic center, you know, that was built from the last time the games were here, I believe it was 75, I think it was, yeah. So it's, it's going to be fantastic. Uh The amount of people that are going to come here. And I I think we're going to be hopefully well out of this pandemic, even well Uh past the endemic stage. It's going to bring a ton of people here. And I've been at two Canada games, never made the Canada games team as a curler. I wasn't good enough back then, but <laughs> I did go to the 2009 and 2011 Canada games with my job at the time. Yeah. I uh, got to go around and interview a bunch of athletes, did some leveraging as a sponsor of the games. And uh, it's going to be absolutely amazing. This city is going to be buzzing when that comes to town. That's right. We had an episode on that with people from uh, the province and people from the city and some athletes. And it was a great thing for anybody listening. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the gold medalist, you know, what advice would you have for young athletes that want to compete at any level? And what does sports do for you? You know, just sky's the limit. You know, I grew up in Harbor Grace, a town of about 3000 people. Um, Never had much money growing up. Never had the best of anything, really. Never went hungry. But you know what, I was, I talked to a lot of kids. I've been in you know, probably a hundred schools in this province and whether we're at assembly or, you know, just in the classroom. And, you know, I tell them, look, I was just like you. I was sat on this auditorium floor and that uncomfortable wooden chair, you know, 30 odd years ago. And, uh, you know, I still remember even the St. John's Maple coming in and talking to us and wanting to be a hockey player, even though I can't really skate, but, you know, just basically, you know, it's, it's small steps, big dreams. Uh, I seen one Olympian write that on a, an autograph one time and I've kind of adopted that and you know pull it a lot of kids again you know you, I moved to St. John's and meet up with Mark and Mike and Brad and you know Russ joins the picture but basically my advice would be is literally sky's the limit if if you have a you know you have a dream or you want to accomplish something it doesn't have to be just sport it could be in painting could be in any discipline anything in life if you really put your mind to it you believe in it surrounding yourself with the you know the the proper people that's one thing we did you know bringing on someone like yourself Mike and I believe it was Dr. Bain and uh, our sports psychologist and Toby and Russ. Just, you know, we wanted people that had that experience. So to anyone listening that, you know, wants to accomplish something, especially in sport, just believe in yourself and mainly work hard at it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, listen, I'm sure we'll all have a couple late nights over the next little while watching the games as they start to wind down. But thanks for sharing your story with us. And, and I'm sure everybody listening has got a much better appreciation of what's going through these athletes head. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you to my guests, Caitlin Osmond and Jamie Koreb for sharing their amazing experiences with us. It was said that the Olympic Games are a global celebration of our hopes, our ideals, and our values. And the most important part of the Games is not winning, but taking part. Not necessarily conquering, but fighting well. I know that Olympic gold medals may not be in all of our futures, but these stories do remind us how amazing we can be here at home. I hope we can all draw some inspiration from today's show, whether that be to lace up your boots to tackle that trail you've always wanted to hike, to take the clothes off that treadmill you got for Christmas, 
or to just tune in and cheer for our Olympians as an armchair athlete. Well, that's our show this week. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.